Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. We're going to continue on in First Peter, but I want to tell you a little story. It says, a California driver's license told about a teenager who had just driven an almost perfect test. The teenager was in the DMV, went through the uh, rite of passage as we are to get our driver's license, and so the instructor was with him and was going through the test. And the examiner said he only made one mistake. And that's when he stopped to let him out of the car, and after breathing a sigh of relief, the boy exclaimed, I'm sure glad I don't have to drive like that all the time. (laughs) Understand this. This young man was not all that different from a lot of people who call themselves Christians. For an hour or two on Sunday mornings, they look, they talk, and they act in a manner that leads others to believe that they are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. But for the other 166 hours in the week, there is really very little in their lives to distinguish them from the unbelieving world around them. It's almost like they walk out of the doors of church on Sunday, and they think, I'm sure glad I don't have to behave like that all the time. Now, I doubt very much that any of you here this morning would go nearly that far. However, at the same time, I think all of us would admit that it is really hard to live consistently as a disciple of Jesus in this world which is exactly why we're studying 1 Peter together. So what's the truth of this? Well, as we come to verse 13 of chapter 1, and you can turn there now. As we go to verse 13 of chapter 1, there is a noticeable shift in Peter's focus. In the first 12 verses of his letter, the verbs are almost all in what we know as the indicative mode. And that's just a fancy word of saying that um, they state facts, okay? But beginning in verse 13, we see that Peter begins to use a lot of imperative verbs, which gives us commands, things that we need to be doing. In other words, Peter began his letter by explaining the reality of our salvation. But now he's going to describe the duty of those who have received that salvation. Now, with that in mind, look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and read along with me as I go through starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed for the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that is preached for all of us. So once again, there is so much in this passage that I'm going to barely be able to scratch the surface this morning. And that's why I encourage you to continue to read this on your own, to dig deeper than we clearly could do in six months. But there's a lot to unwrap here. But with the limited time we have, I'm going to concentrate this morning primarily on verses 14 through 16, which I believe are the heart of Peter's message in this section. So, let's read those verses again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes from the Old Testament to give credence to the idea that as children of God... We are to be obedient children whose conduct is holy in every single area of our lives. And that means that our holiness is not to be limited to a couple of hours on Sunday morning. It is not, as we'll see this morning, even to be limited to only our time when we become suddenly religious. That is not the intention here. In fact, this verse, along with many others in the Bible, makes it clear that there is no distinction in our lives between the sacred and the secular. God never intended for us to compartmentalize our lives like that. It's intended to be consistent. It's intended to be one thing and not the other. We're not to have one foot in the door and one foot out the other. You shall be holy, for I am holy. I have no problem at all with the idea that our conduct in the very area of our lives is to be holy. But I'll admit that I do struggle with the command that God gave to his people in the book of Leviticus that Peter quotes. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Why? Well, do any of the rest of you look at the command like I do and think that it's an impossible command to obey? What do you think? Is it impossible for us to be holy? 
I mean, how could I possibly even approach God's holiness as I live my life? I believe God is holy, but for me to be holy the way he is holy is an impossible standard to attain. So why do we continue to do it? Why do the preachers sit in the pulpit and tell you to be holy, to be righteous, to come to God, to surrender your life to God? Because he's asked us to. Because there's so much that lies in wait for us. And he's commanded us to do so. In order to understand what God meant when he gave that command, we need to do two things. First, we need to make sure we understand the meaning of the word holy. And then we also need to understand the context in which God gave that command to his people. Now, we'll begin with the definition of holy. And although we've defined what this word means before, it's really easy to fall back into some of our preconceived notions about what holiness really means. Most people associate holiness with moral purity. So they often define holiness by making a legalistic list of all the things that Christians can't do. I don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. We've heard that saying before. So they believe in order to be holy, you can't have any fun or enjoy yourself or even smile. We probably know some Christians like that. But holy does not mean sourpuss. It's not what it means. Both the Hebrew word translated holy in the Old Testament and the Greek word translated holy in the New Testament mean set apart. Set apart. God is holy not because he is merely more moral than we are, but because he is completely set apart from his creation. He is unique and distinct in every way. One of the books that I read quite often during seminary is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And in that book, he writes these insightful words about God's holiness. He says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. And while that definition doesn't answer our doubts about how we could possibly live up to that standard, it does reveal that God's command for us is to be holy, but it also involves a life that is set apart, that is unique and distinct. And I've said before that I hope that when we're on trial for being a Christian, that there is enough evidence to convict us. But you see, in order to gain a fuller understanding of how we are able to be holy, we need to go back and look at the context, the context in which God gave that command to his people in the book of Leviticus. Now, the relevant portion of that book is bookended at both ends by the command to be holy because God is holy. 
Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am the Lord your God and am holy. Now, in between those verses, God prescribes the way that his people are to live and to worship him in a manner that will set them apart from the pagan nations that surrounded them. He gives the blueprint. And those instructions are not merely directed towards their religious observances, but they cover a single area of their lives from which they were to eat to how they were to to treat their parents. Simple tasks that you and I take for granted day to day. And God certainly gave his people these commands for their own good. We know that. He gives them to us for our own good. But it is clear that his greater purpose was so that his people would live in a manner that set them apart from other nations around them. We should not be conforming to the norm. What is the norm? It's different for everybody, isn't it? Feels good to do. Yeah. But we are not to conform ourselves to that idea. We are to conform ourselves to the idea that we too can be holy. Why? Because God said so. Amen. God said so, and He lays it out for us. Leviticus 20 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You see, when God commands us to be holy, because he is holy, he is not saying that we need to attain to the standard of who he is, but rather which all we know is impossible. But if we're going to be God's children and call him father, like we see in verse 17, then there ought to be a family resemblance. It's always a joke all the time at our house. Stanley says, Hannah looks exactly like me. She's definitely my daughter. She looks exactly like me. And we all laugh. Why? Well, for many reasons. But the reason is there needs to be a resemblance there. God says that when we become his people, there needs to be a resemblance. If people look at us and say, well, I don't know if that guy's a Christian. I don't know if she's a Christian. That's a problem. That's a problem because God commands us to be holy. And being holy as God is holy means living as a stranger in a strange world. Perhaps I can best illustrate this by asking you to imagine what it would uh, be like for some reason if you had to pick up and move to a country whose customs and cultures were completely different than what you're used to. Anybody travel to foreign countries and notice the culture change? What if you had to pick up today and live there? Some of you would be like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> but the culture's different, right? 
And so what do we do when we get there? Do we feel a little bit out of place? Especially if it's a short period of time. Yeah, we feel out of place. But some of us, we can learn the language. We can adhere to the customs. And then all of a sudden, you kind of become intertwined in within that. That's what God's saying about Christians. As a Christian life, we need to be intertwined with the inner workings of what it is to be a Christian. And the point Peter's making here is that living as a citizen of heaven in this world ought to feel a lot like that to us. We should feel uncomfortable here. This is not our home. We should feel uncomfortable. And frankly, if that isn't consistently uncomfortable for you, then we probably aren't being holy in all of our conduct because being holy means being set apart and unique and being set apart and unique means we shouldn't fit into this world and that should be uncomfortable. I don't like being uncomfortable. And I was just talking with some of the gentlemen in the back. It's been a, almost a year since I st- when I first got sick. That was very, very uncomfortable. Not only for me, but for my family to watch me go through that. But we worked together. We did the things that we needed to do. And that's what God is saying here. We need to be doing the things that while we are uncomfortable here, we continue to do the things that God has called us to do and commanded us to do, we can get over that uncomfortableness. If others around me aren't noticing that there is something different about the way that we're living our lives, then perhaps we've gotten a little too friendly with the world that we're living in and are no longer living as a stranger in a strange world. James warns us of this kind of mindset and actually makes an enemy of God. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Are we making ourselves enemies of God? So I have to ask some hard questions this morning to help us evaluate how we're living as strangers in a strange world. Let me ask you this. In your job, are you a different kind of employee than the rest of your fellow co-workers? Do you show up for work on time every day and put in a full day's work, even when other employees don't and they get away with it, and sometimes even get ahead in spite of the work that they do? Do you treat your employer and other employees with respect even when they don't treat you fairly? Men, in your marriage, do you love your wives as Christ loves the church and put her needs ahead of your own? I'm guilty. When you hang out with your co-workers, family and friends, do you laugh at their crude jokes? Or join in with their coarse talk? How about women in your marriage? Do you love and submit to your husband's leadership in the family? It's interesting over the years how many officials now know 
and people who aren't officials recognize people as Christians? What is their first clue? How do they know someone's a Christian? They talk the talk, right? But it goes far beyond that. All of a sudden they start doing things that are considered Christian. Now, how many of us have been accused of not being a Christian? Are we honest in our business and financial dealings, even when that might cost us? Do we cheat on our taxes by not reporting income, by claiming deductions that you're not entitled to? I'm hoping people aren't walking out the door here. (laughs) When you go to the grocery store and they give you back too much change, do you keep it and say, ooh, round of golf this week? These are just a few areas where the standards of this world are different than the standards that God has laid out and down for those who are his children. And as these questions point out, it's often difficult and uncomfortable and even costly to live as a stranger in this strange world. Now, most of the questions I just asked deal with our conduct and our behavior. So it seems logical that the way to live as a stranger in a strange land is to focus on changing our behavior. But that's not the approach that Peter encourages us to take here. That's because he knew what we see demonstrated around us all the time. And that approach just doesn't work. Now, I also saw that personally every day as I go around and do the things that I do, and I'm sure it's the same for you. You know, you, you see people you've never seen before and, and who have decided to change their behavior in order to lose weight or to get in shape. But I also know that based on past experience, that won't last for the majority of people. We're coming up on the new year already and the new year's resolutions. And we know what a, what a joke that is. But it doesn't last. It doesn't last. Because the people that make these covenants, that make these promises, that make these decisions will go back to normal in about a month or a month and a half if you're lucky. So if focusing on our behavior will help us live as a stranger in a strange land... What will help us do that? What will help us achieve that? Well, fortunately, Peter answers that question for us in this passage. And since I don't have a whole line to go into detail with that, we're going to use um, this passage in which is crucial in helping to understand what Peter teaches about how to live like that. So let me just point out that there are four commands that Peter gives in this section. And for the most part, those commands deal with our conduct and behavior. But each of those commands is also supported by some additional teaching by Peter that gives the reason for those commands and or details which allow us to focus our attention on what's important. 
And if we want to be able to do what God has commanded and be holy by living as strangers in a strange land, we learn to do that by, well, we need to discipline our minds. We need to discipline our minds. And that's one of the ways we conduct ourselves in a holy manner. And this is the principle we see in verse 13. The command that Peter gives there is to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the second coming of Christ. That certainly reinforces what we learned last week when we found that the way we make our living hope real is to look ahead to our inheritance instead of looking around at our circumstances. So the command itself certainly has more to do with our mind rather than our actions. But then Peter uses two principles that reveal what we need to do in order to obey that command. We need to prepare our minds for action. We need to prepare our minds for action. And if you're using the English Standard Version, you'll see that there is a footnote that indicates that the underlying Greek here actually reads, girding up the loins of your mind. And to be honest, I wish the translators would have translated it that way because it actually paints a much more vivid picture of what Peter is calling for us to do here. In Peter's day, the men usually wore long flowing robes. So if they had to work or run or carry a burden or fight in a war, they had to gird up their loins by tucking their robes into their belts. That way they didn't have anything that hindered them from doing what they needed to do. And so the idea of girding the loins of our minds is the idea of removing any hindrances that might distract us from focusing our minds upon the things of God. That also means we need to be sober-minded. Now, Peter is going to come back to this idea of being sober-minded a couple more times in this letter. But literally, this verb means to not get drunk. But by applying it to the mind, Peter is picturing the idea of keeping control over one's mind and not being intoxicated by the mindset of the world. And taken together, these two verbs show us the need to have a disciplined mind in which we control what goes in it. We need to control what goes in it. And Paul captured the same idea. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Like I said, we talked about this idea some last week when we discussed the need to constantly be making choices that will determine what is allowed into our minds. And the things that we see, the things that we read, the things that we watch and hear are all going to put things in our minds. We know this. So we have to have the discipline to actively manage what we are allowing to enter our minds because what goes into our minds eventually determines our conduct. And there are two important ways that we need to discipline our minds according to this passage. It says, close my mind 
to the thinking of this world. Seems simple enough, but it is not an easy task because it's right in front of your face every day. Anytime you turn on the television, anytime you open up your computer, anytime you look at your phone, it's right there. But Peter gives us several reminders of what our lives were like before we became God's children and became citizens of this kingdom. And he reminds us that we are not to dwell on the former way of life. We're not to dwell upon it. Why? Because it will affect our conduct. It will affect our behavior. In verse 14, he instructs us not to be conforming to the passions of our former ignorance. So, before we became disciples of Jesus, we were all enslaved to earthly passions. And Paul put it this way, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In verse 18, Peter reminds us that Jesus ransomed us from our former way of life, which was characterized by futility. And then in verse 22, we were reminded that our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth. The consistent idea here is that there is a mindset that we all once had when we were citizens of this world. But we need to take the practical steps to ensure that we don't allow that old way of thinking back into our minds. Open my mind to the thinking of God's world. And Peter reminds us here that God has, and, and what he has done in order to make us his children and citizens of his kingdom. Because he ransomed us at a great price. We see that in 18 through 21. Peter reminds us here of the great price that God paid to ransom us from the former futile way of life. He didn't pay the ransom with perishable things like silver or gold, but rather with the precious blood of Christ. And that was God's plan from before the foundation of this world. And even though Jesus was perfect, without spot or blemish, he willingly gave his life. And on that cross, and then God raised him from the dead so that God could receive glory and so that we could have faith and hope. He also gave us a new birth. In verse 23, Peter picks up again on the idea we saw last week in verse 3. God has caused us to be born again. He has given us new life and called us to live in a new world and be citizens of heaven while simultaneously living here for a time on earth. It is that new birth that provides the only possibility of being able to be holy in all of our conduct. How does he do that? He sustains us with his word. He sustains us with his word. Peter primarily writes about how God's living and abiding word is the agent of our being born again. But because his word remains forever, it sustains us in our everyday lives. 
It is there where God reveals himself to us and he reveals his purposes. He reveals his plans and his ways. So the more time we spend saturating our minds with his word, the more our ways will become his ways. So what's the inspiration to all of this? Well, being holy as God is holy requires us to live as a stranger in a strange world. Now, when our mind is constantly focused on all that God has done for us in choosing us to be his children and making us a citizen of his kingdom, then over time our conduct will naturally end up being consistent with the principles of God's kingdom. And the good news is that when the change behavior occurs as a result of disciplining our minds rather than trying to change our behavior, we are much more likely to be able to live that strange life in a strange land. But there needs to be action. There needs to be action. And as we close, I want to encourage all of us to take two simple practical steps that will help us to apply what we've learned this morning. First, evaluate what you're watching. Evaluate what you're watching. Evaluate what you're reading, you're seeing, and listening to, and identify those things that are filling your mind to the thinking of this world. And then take concrete steps. Take those steps to remove those things from your life. Secondly, fill your mind with the thinking of God's kingdom by reading the Bible and spending time in prayer with Him every day. Those two steps. It's very simple. It's a simple message. It is a simple truth. When we obey God's commands, we too can be holy. If we would all just do those two things, then we would be well on our way to making sure that we are holy in all of our conduct. And not just on Sunday mornings. And not just on Wednesday evenings. This becomes a consistency in our lives that God recognizes and he blesses. And in turn, he blesses those around us. But we need to do this every day of our lives. Amen? Amen. Dave's going to come and lead us in our benediction. And I pray we think about these steps every day. And if you find yourself not adhering to these steps, you've got people right there ready to encourage you. You've got people here ready to fight that fight with you. And more importantly, God lies in wait for you. We just need to call upon him. Whatever's true, noble, and right, pure, lovely, and admirable, may we reflect on those things, those things that are excellent and praiseworthy. And we do that. We'll get God's perspective over what Chris has been, Pastor Chris has been talking about. I just enjoy this so very, very much. Great encouragement. And as we leave here today, may we keep this name on top of mind. Jesus, Jesus.
Lord, there is something about that name. Let us exclaim it every day. Let it be the forefront of our minds as we walk through these doors and walk out through these doors so that you may be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.